may be seated. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here today. Please do. I, I, I plugged this pretty hard last week, so I don't want to take a lot of our time this morning on it this week. But please do consider being part of our Wednesday night offerings, the, the different things we do there. If you're not familiar with Rushwood Church, we do it a little bit different, or we've come to do it a little bit different. We have one semester that is small groups, or we call them life groups, and that was the past semester. This semester, we have a big group meeting that meets over in our Senior Life Center, which is the building right out here to the left. We have food at 5.30. I was corrected last week. I said from 5.30 to 6.45. We serve from 5.30 to 6.30, $3 a plate. Kids two and under eat free, but that's just a great fellowship time. If you don't know people in this church yet, this is a great time to come and get to know some people, meet some new friends. I love it because it is uh, multi-generational. It's not just one generation that meets over there, um, but it's all sorts of folks from all sorts of different ages that get to meet each other and, and have a good time together. And then church history, I'm biased because I teach it, but I think there's some pretty good stuff going on there as well. We're finishing up our church history course Last semester, we went for, through 1,500 years. We went all the way up to the Reformation. This time, we're going from the Reformation to present day, and we will finish up our church history course. Love for you to come and just give it a try. If you don't think it's going to be good, come give it a try anyway and just see what you think. If you don't like it, you're under no obligation to hang out with us on Wednesday nights. Do remember the books will be $10 a piece. That just covers our printing costs. We're not making anything on those just covering the printing costs so that you can have those to hang on to. So please please be part of that. I pray that you would consider to be part of what's going on on Wednesday nights. Your youth need to be part of our youth program. Uh, your, your kids need to be part of our Awana's program. Good stuff going on there. Also, I want to update you. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of Saturdays ago, we did our first Love Life Walk, uh, which is a group that started in Charlotte. Now it's come to Greensboro, and basically they worship and they pray outside of abortion centers. They don't try to interact with folks unless the people approach them and come to them for help. But just a great ministry started in Charlotte. Yesterday it actually launched in the Triangle, so they're, they're now in Raleigh-Durham, Chapel Hill in that area, and they're continuing on in Greensboro in the Triad. And this past week they had 10 people... Um, decide either there at the site or through the crisis pregnancy centers that are around there that they, instead of having abortion, that they would keep their children. And so I think that's worthy of praise right there. They also let me know yesterday that there are 30 cities in the United States that have invited them to come and be part, uh, uh, to do some, the same thing they're doing in Greensboro and Charlotte and in the Triangle. They're, they've been invited to go to those cities and do the same thing. The church needs to show up. Where there's death, the church is supposed to bring life. And so we're really glad that we're part of Love Life, that we're a Love Life church now. We make no apologies for it. Some people may not like it. Bless their hearts. Um, so glad that we're part of that. Our next day will be August the 25th. That will be our next Saturday where Rushwood will actually be leading the worship, and I'll actually be speaking out there. What I heard so much last Saturday as people came out for the first time to be part of this was, I'm so glad I went. I'm so glad. I was nervous about it. I wasn't sure if I'd like it or not. I'm so glad that I went. And so you guys, I want to invite you to be part of that on August 25th. It's going to be every Saturday through November 17th. But our Saturday that we're sponsoring, if you particularly want to be with a bigger Rushwood crowd, will be 
on August the 25th. And so just praise God for that ministry. Pray for those that are in leadership there because when something good is happening, Satan always shows up and tries to do something against it. And, of course, greater is he that's within us than he that's within the world. And so we know that God has already given us the victory in that. Well, happy August to you. You guys believe it's August already, kids? School is coming, so just uh, I'm sorry about that, but it's inevitable. It's coming back around, but it's August. This year has really flown. Man, it just seems like it was just January where pipes were bursting in the wall as it was uh, really cold, and the Lord protected this sanctuary from flooding a couple of different times. It just seems like that just happened, and now we're all the way to August. Time is flying, and God is still good even in the midst of everything. Um, if you haven't been here, we want to. We're glad that you're here, first of all. But I want to catch you up about what we have been talking about. We've been in a series called Rooted, and the first week of Rooted, we talked about some of the things that, as a church, we hang our hat on: our mission statement, vision statement, why this church was originally formed in 1950 was to reach this community, and God, I believe, still wants to reach this community that surrounds this church, and so that's part of, of, of who we are and what we want to do. Um, but also, last week, we talked a little bit more about the prayer that Paul puts forward in the book of Ephesians. In the center part of that book, he's praying for the church, probably at Ephesus, and probably Ephesus would have passed his letter on to other churches in the surrounding area. So basically, in that whole area of Asia, Asia Minor, Paul is praying for the church. He's praying for the people of God in that area, uh, specifically that they might become rooted, that they might become founded and grounded in the love of God, in the love of Jesus Christ. And so as what we're doing over these next few weeks is we're looking at some of the big ideas that are in this prayer that Paul puts forward. We're not necessarily taking it verse by verse and breaking it down as much as we're looking at what are some of the big concepts that help to root us as Christians, that help to root us as the people of God. And so that's what we've been doing over the last couple of weeks, and that's what we're going to continue to do. Before we dive in any further, I want to read Paul's prayer to you just to remind you of what it says, a beautiful prayer that's here in the center part of the book of Ephesians. I'm not going to have, a lot of times I have you stand back up and read it with me. I'm not going to have you do that this morning, but uh, we, we may do that some other Sundays. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, Paul prays this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. That's where we're going this morning. Every family on heaven and earth derives its name. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. You can know him and not be filled up to his fullness. Paul is saying, I want you guys to be filled up to his fullness. I don't want you to have a little bit. I want you to go all the way. Now to him, he ends his prayer this way, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church. Amen? Glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. 
glory to God is supposed to happen in the church. And that, does just, that doesn't mean just in the church meetings that we have. But it does mean that we're supposed to glorify God in the church meetings that we have. We're supposed to lift our voice and praise Him. We're supposed to be excited about what He's done and what He's doing. We're supposed to bring glory to God when we come together as a family. But what I really want to key in on this morning is this verse right at the beginning of this prayer. We talked about a little bit about it last week. We're going back to it this week. This verse says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Two important words there in that, in that verse, in that sentence. Father and name. Father and name. We're going to draw a connection between father and name today. And we're going to explore a little bit about identity, who we are in Christ, how we get our identity from God. Church, uh, I have a theory I don't want to necessarily say this is a biblical law and that somebody might not make an argument against it, but as I've looked and as I've studied, I've come up with a theory. And so if I have a theory, it's no good just that Brent has a theory. What we have to do is test any theory, that, uh, any spiritual theory, any idea of, of, a, of a spiritual law against God's Word. And so that's what we want to do this morning. And I don't want to give you the theory yet. I need to set it up a little bit why I believe this. And so just bear with me. Hey, by the way, this morning, it's not going to be one of those, you know, sometimes we kind of have like a generic sermon that kind of skims the surface and hits kind of some, some pretty basic things. This is going a little bit deeper today, so you got to keep up with me. I'm building a case today, part by part, and if you don't keep up with me, you're going to get lost. So if you will, lend me your minds, lend God your minds uh, for this period of time, and let's really dig in and let's really focus on this because I have a theory and I, I believe I can sustain it from the Word of God. This is not a theory. This one we know for sure. God is the only being. God is the only being in heaven and on earth who is self-defining. Who is self-defining. This we know for sure. God is the only one that doesn't have to have anybody else to define who he is to give him identity. In fact, we can't give God identity. If we give God the wrong identity, if we say, God, you are this when he is not, then that's called blasphemy. We're attributing wrong things to God. God self-identifies. God is the only one who defines himself, who knows who he is and gives himself his own identity. I'll prove it from the word. When Moses encountered God at the burning bush, when he first met with God there, he was out in the backside of the wilderness tending the sheep, and all of a sudden he sees this great sight of a bush that was burning, but the fire wasn't consuming him. And he said, I'll turn aside and see what's going on here. And there he met the God of the universe in that burning bush. When he asked God, and God said, look, you need to go to Egypt. You need to tell Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may worship me. We forget that. It's not just let my people go, but it's let my people go so they may worship me. And Moses says, well, who's, who should I tell them sent me? Who is this God that's sending me to talk to the greatest uh, ruler, the greatest monarch in the world at that time? Who is this God that is sending me to Pharaoh? And God says, I am that I am. I am that I am. And if you'll notice in your Bible, if you, if you look in Exodus, you don't have to turn there right now, but next time you're in that area, notice that's all capitalized because that is the powerful, powerful name of God. That is the core of his being. I am that I am. 
Or some Hebrew scholars translate it this way, I will be whatever I will be. In other words, we don't get to tell God who he is. We don't get to define him. He defines himself because he is the sovereign, powerful God of the universe. And animated dust like I am and like you are, we don't get to define God. We can call him whatever we want to. It doesn't change his nature at all. He is who he is. He will be whomever he wants to be. That's our powerful God. That's our mighty Father. Only God is able to define himself. Everything else gets, their, gets its identity from God. Everything that's in existence gets its identity in relationship to him. Whether we know it or not, whether we acknowledge it or, God, or not, everything gets its identity. Everything is defined that's outside of God is defined by God, but not God. He is self-defining. He is who he is. He will be whomever he chooses to be. That's the first thing you need to understand to kind of get this theory that I've developed. The second thing you need to understand is God has chosen a primary way to communicate to us who he is. You understand, if God never communicated to us who he is, we wouldn't know who he is because we are down here and he is up here. We wouldn't know him, we wouldn't see him, we wouldn't understand it unless he had chosen to communicate himself to us. It's called revelation, that he would reveal himself to us as to who he is. Uh, I've heard atheists say before, you know, well, if, I, if somebody said uh, to a famous atheist, what if you get to the end of your life and you, decide, and, and you have to go before God and you have to give an account, what will you say for yourself? I think it was Bertrand Russell, but I'm, I'm not 100% sure on that. What would you say for yourself? And he said, I would say, sir, you should have given me more evidence of your existence. I believe there's plenty of evidence of God's existence. I believe a lot of times we don't want to acknowledge the evidence of God's existence that's right there in front of our face because if we acknowledge the existence of God, then we have to come under him. Because if God exists, that means he's mightier, he's more powerful, he's more perfect than we are, and that means we have to submit to something, and we want to be the ones that define ourselves, and we want to say of ourselves, I am who I am, and I will be whomever I will be. But it's simply not true, because God is the only self-defining one. But God has communicated himself to us in this book, which is true revelation, which is the word of God, which is how we know primarily above all whom God is, who God is, God has communicated himself to us primarily as Father. That is his primary mode of communication to us. He identifies himself as Father. Now, God is whoever he wants to be, and he can be whomever he wants to be. So God could have revealed himself to us a thousand different ways, and there are other ways that he identifies himself to us within this word. But the primary mode is Father. God does not communicate himself to us as Mother. He does not communicate himself to us. You know, there's this whole pagan thing of Mother Earth and all that. And if you look throughout history, a lot of times there were pagan goddesses. A lot of times there were female goddesses that were set up. And when the children of Israel started worshiping them, all sorts of things fell apart within Israel. And God had to judge them. And all that's in the background. But God says, I am a father. And I am your father. I desire to be your father. This is the way I will communicate myself to you. So sorry, Ariana Grande, God is a father. That's whom he is, if you, if you know what I'm talking about. Paul says, God is the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. God is a father. And so when God created the world, because he's a father, 
And because he's the only self-identifying one, he started to give existence its identity. He started his creation. He started to name what he had created. Read it in the very first part of Genesis. He says, this is called day and this will be called night. This is called sky and this will be called seas. This is called land and this is, will be called water. God, through his word, through uh, his actual naming of parts of creation, gave identity to these parts of creation. And so God is the self-identifying one. He communicates himself primarily to us as our father. And then he starts to give creation its identity. Very interesting there. And it's very interesting also there's a dualism in what God creates. Day has night. Sky has seas. Land has water. Man has woman. God creates a duality in all of these things. He's setting things up in that way from the very beginning. And so God creates all this, but then in the Genesis account, God creates the first man, and his name is Adam. And what does Adam mean? Man. Pretty much it just means man. God creates Adam, man, and he sets him over his creation as his viceroy in the earth. Now, if you don't know what that word viceroy means, it means that someone who rules in the absence of a greater ruler. And so even though God was present, God placed Adam here, and Adam began to rule over this earth as if he were God on the earth, God's person, God's man on the earth to rule this creation that God had created. You say, Brent, do you really believe all that? Absolutely. If I didn't, I would quit. I'd walk out the door. I'd go do something else. I absolutely, positively believe that's exactly what happened because that's what the Word of God teaches has happened. But after Adam was created, Adam began to be the one who named everything. So after you see, up until Adam's created, check behind me, go back and read the book of Genesis, see if I'm right on this, but I believe you'll find that I am. Up until Adam was created, God did all the naming. God did all the identifying. But when Adam was created, then he lets Adam become the one who has the power to identify things and to give identity within this earth. You say, Brent, where in the world are you going with all this? Just stay with me. We'll get there in just a minute, okay? Adam becomes the one who gives a name to everything. He's the one that begins to identify things. God brings all the animals that have been created to Adam, and Adam gives those animals their name. He gives them their identity. So all these living things come to Adam, and Adam says, this is a snake. This is a hyena. This is a giraffe. This is a tiger. You know, he's naming all these things. And then Adam notices, and God notices too, that Adam is without a helper. Adam is with, Adam needs something else that's not being provided. So we know that God puts Adam into a deep sleep. He takes a rib out of Adam, and from that rib, he creates a woman. One who is like Adam, but also at the same time different than Adam. A complementary person to go along with Adam. And so if you'll notice in Genesis, God does not name Eve. Adam is the one who names Eve, and, and Adam says, this is Eve. She is the mother of all living. She's the mother of all humanity. She's the one that's going to be over all of this along with me. So Adam named everything that was named from the time he was created up until the time that sin entered the world. Everything that was created up to that time. But then once sin entered the world, once Adam and Eve take of the forbidden fruit, they now have knowledge that they're not supposed to have, knowledge that was reserved originally only for God, then you see a change. The next two things that are named, so at the beginning, God's naming everything. Then he creates Adam. Adam names everything. Then after sin enters the world and mankind falls, you see a shift, and Eve, 
names the first two sons, and maybe the third, we're not told, but Eve begins to name, and Eve begins to give identity to things after the fall. She names Cain, she names Seth, she's the one that begins to give identity. So here's my theory, we're finally to my theory. That was all set up, that was all backing, that was all trying to get you to understand kind of where we're going this morning. Here's my theory. God has given men, particularly fathers, the ability to define or give identity to their children. God has given. Now, if this is true, if my theory is right, this is important, and it's deep, and it's something that we need to be aware of. God has given men, particularly fathers, the ability to define or give identity to their children. Okay, I can see some of you aren't convinced yet, so let's go a little further. We keep reading in the book of Genesis, and we find that God calls this man named Abraham, and Abraham sets off for a, a nation, that, a country that he doesn't even know where it is. He just steps out on faith, follows God. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob, and so God is building this nation. He's building this people, this channel of grace through which eventually the Messiah will come into this world. But God has brought up this man named Jacob. Jacob has a wife named Rachel. Actually, he has two wives, which, man, that always causes problems. Sometimes people say, why did God allow that in the Old Testament? Well, I don't know God's mind completely. I only know what he's revealed. I'm not sure. But I know that it always caused problems throughout the whole thing because one woman is enough for any man. Amen? And so a mess was caused there. But Jacob had Leah, and then he had Rachel, who was really his favorite wife. Rachel is giving birth to a son. And as she's giving birth to a son, she's having really tough labor. She sees that this is not going to end well for her, that she's going to die in childbirth most likely. So as she's giving birth to this son, she names him Benoni. Rachel gives the name to her son. She says, you are Benoni, which means the son of my suffering. But this is such a beautiful thing that happens right here. It's an illustration of God the Father and his love for us. Instead of keeping the name Benoni, which means son of my suffering, Jacob says, no, this child will not be called the son of my suffering. He will be called Benjamin. Benjamin means the son of my right hand. So he takes the name of this child and he says, you will not have a curse as a name. You will not have a negative name. You will have a positive name. You will have a great name. And you will be called the son of my right hand or the son of my power. And so the father steps in and changes the name the mother gave to the child to, to something that is a blessing. I think that goes to my theory that God has given men the ability to define. Then we go into the New Testament. Get in the very first part of the New Testament. There's an old guy there named Zechariah. And he goes in and offers incense before the Lord. Now remember, at this point in time, for 400 years, God has been quiet. It's the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. For 400 years, God has been quiet. But then God speaks and says, Zechariah, you and Elizabeth, you're about to have a child. Old as you are, barren as you have been, you're about to have a child. And he's going to do amazing things in Israel. And so Zechariah is actually struck dumb. He cannot speak. And the time comes when the child is about to be delivered and his wife Elizabeth is there and his neighbors are there and the child's about to be born. And the neighbors say, you know what, we need to name this child because his dad can't speak. We need to give him a name. And so they, they're going to name him Zechariah after his father. But the angel has already revealed to Zechariah that this child is to be named John. 
And so his mother, Elizabeth, says, no, 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 his name is John. But the neighbors won't believe her. They say, nobody in your family has that name. That can't be the name that this child should be named. But then his father asks for a writing tablet and comes in and writes on that tablet, his name is John. And so he identifies his son as John, which means the grace of the Lord or the grace of God. And his child grows up to be John the Baptist. And Jesus says, among men, there's none greater born than John the Baptist. And so again, we see the father defining who the child is. And now I'm about to wrap it up. You're about to believe my theory on this one because I don't think I can get any better evidence than this. Jesus the Messiah. The angel said he will be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. He will be called Jesus, which means he saves. And so that's the name that's given to Jesus. Savior, Messiah, God with us. But as Jesus grows up, and he's, he's the son of the carpenter, he's the son of Joseph, he's been working as, as a tradesman there and that, but when he hits 30 years old, it's time for him to start his earthly ministry. His time has now come in that respect. And so he starts his ministry, and he goes to John the Baptist, who was his cousin, to be baptized by John. And John says, why should I baptize you? You need to baptize me. And Jesus says, suffer it now to be like this so we can fulfill all righteousness. By the way, that's a good lesson for us as Christians. Sometimes we don't have to do something, but we need to do something. And that's what Jesus did to set an example for us. But as he goes and as he's being baptized, as his ministry is about to begin, a voice comes from heaven, his heavenly father, defining who he is. And God the Father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God the Father gives his son Jesus identity. Now that's powerful. If Jesus needed that, how much more do we need that? Then as Jesus is approaching, as you read on through the Gospels, as Jesus is approaching the end of his earthly ministry, God does it all over again. Before the end of his ministry, God's voice comes from heaven one more time. God the Father speaks one more time and says, this is my beloved son. But instead of saying, in whom I am well pleased, God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Or I think the King James puts it, hear ye him. Listen to him. This is one that you need to listen to. This is my beloved son. So at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the Father defines him. At the end of Jesus' ministry, the Father gives definition to who he is. This goes to my theory that God has given men, he's granted fathers the right to give identity and name to their children. By the way, and I, as I was going through this sermon, it just dawned on me. We didn't plan this in our marriage. We didn't plan this in our family. But every one of our kids, I'm the one basically that came up with a name for our kids, which if you think my wife is like, oh, she'll just go along with anything, you don't know my wife real well. She has an opinion. She has a mind of her own. So that's kind of unique and different that I'm the one who basically named every one of our kids. And every one of our kids, there was two rules for us naming our kids. Number one, they had to have a name that did not correspond with the name of a child I taught when I was a school teacher because I just couldn't deal with that. Had to have a unique name that I'd never taught a kid by that name. That was name number one or rule number one. Second thing was they had to have a name that had a spiritual meaning that was deeper than just, oh, this is the trendy name that's going on right now. And so each one of them had to have a different name, uh, meaning that actually had a spiritual meaning. So my oldest son, his name means fiery gift of God. And what's amazing is he has lived up to it. 
In our family, he's a gift of God. He takes care of the other kids. He worries about mom and dad. He's like a sheepdog who just cares about everybody in the family. And yet he's fiery. He's opinionated. I don't know where he gets it. But anyway, he will just, he will just tell you what he thinks right off the bat. Our second son, and this one my wife pointed out that she did mention the middle name, but I'm the one that confirmed it. But our second son, his name means noble warrior. Noble is, has a little bit of a proud ring to it. And our second son, he carries himself like he is the man. He will tell you he's the man. He, he's got a little bit of a noble air about him. And at the same time, he will fight all over the place. He'll fight his older brother. He'll fight his younger sister. He'll fight for his right to party. No, not to party. But anyway, he will fight. I mean, he will. This kid is, is definitely a noble warrior. And then our daughter, we named her a name that means graceful and pure. And she's like the clumsiest kid you've ever seen. But there's a second meaning to graceful. It can also mean generous and kind. And she has that sort of spirit. And I pray that as she grows older, she is pure and lives a pure life before God. And then our last little girl, we named her a name that means beautiful woman of God. And we really believe that's what she's going to grow into. All of our kids, we named them something spiritual. And, and the father, being me, was the one who gave name to our kids. I think that's important because they can always know their identity through their name and that their dad gave them that name. Y'all, I'm giving you this. This is not necessarily part of the sermon, but I just found this and I thought it was cool and I thought I would share it with you. As I was studying this, I thought, well, I wonder what our president's name means. Because this dude's something, you know, he's something else, right? So I had to go in and I had to research what his name means. Donald actually means mighty. John actually means the grace of God. And the trump is what sounds before the end. And so maybe if we put all that together, this is a deep theory. This is one that I don't know that I can back up with scripture. The mighty grace of God before the end. And I do believe, whatever you think about this president, and some days I like him better than others, and, you know, he, he had to win me over, I'll be honest about it. But I do believe God has given his people a grace through this man's period of leadership where, where it's maybe held the world off uh, with persecution and other things that could come against the church so we can do a little bit more work, so we can get a little bit more done before the end. And so that's a deep theory, but mighty grace of God, maybe that uh, before the end, maybe that's what God has given us through him. Now quit thinking about that and we'll get back to the sermon. All right. Men give names, men give identities, Father give ident fathers give identities to their children. In the Hebrew custom, a name for a child was not just a name. It was a definition. It was an identity. So if I'm right about this, and I think I am, I think I backed it up pretty well from Scripture. If I'm right about all this, God has granted fathers the ability to be a physical representation of who he is to their families on this earth. And if I'm right, God has given fathers the unique power to help give identity to their children that even a mother cannot give. And if I'm right on this, then there is no wonder that in America we are in a mess when it comes to young people knowing who they are. Because fathers in this nation are largely one of three things. They're either absent or they're apathetic or they're abusive. Absent, apathetic, or abusive. 
and no wonder if God has given fathers the right to define their children and to give identity to who their children are, then there is no wonder that we are coming out with kids, with young people who are totally confused about their identity, totally confused about their identity. I've I got stories. I won't even go into them because you'll focus more on the stories than other things. But it, it's just really obvious that in our nation anymore, we have trouble knowing who we are, especially our young people. To the point that now one of the most basic things that God has ever defined for us, gender identity or our biological sexual identity, we're confused about that. And that's so basic, y'all. That's, that's down at this level of knowing who we are. And people are even confused about that. Children are coming out scarred because their fathers are absent, apathetic, or abusive, and they're coming out with broken identities. And sometimes it can make us kind of mad. You look at it from the outside and you're like, I can't believe this person thinks that about themselves. I can't believe this is how they're identifying themselves. But you know what? They're the victim of it. They're the victim of, of a fatherless generation, a fatherless nation that we have going on right now. We have boys who seek to find their identity from their mother. And that's, that's what they really have to go to, but it won't work. Because I believe really it's the father's job to identify, especially masculinity. I believe that masculinity confers masculinity upon masculinity. I believe a man, a boy, a young man has to have an older man in his life to help him understand what it means to be a man. My son is in his 12th year of life, my oldest son, and this year we're going to work on what it means to be a man. I want to teach him this year, son, here's the definition of what a man is. Here's what I want you to go after. Here's what I want you to live like. This is what a man is, and I'm going to try to pour that identity into him. But we have a lot of broken gangs. I mean, the rise of gangs. This is young men. What gangs really are is young men looking for identity from other men that they're not getting from a father in a healthy situation. That's why we have our young men going into gangs and living a life of crime and getting hooked on drugs and all these terrible things that happen with gang violence. Talk about Greensboro. I was talking to a couple of pastors in Greensboro, and they said, look, where we pastor, where we minister, you don't want to come over there because the gangs are killing people all the time in these areas. Gangs because we don't have fathers that are stepping up. Church, here, here's just, let, let's bottom line it. Fathers in our culture are messed up. So what do we do? What do we do because fathers in our culture are messed up? How can we fix this? How can we work with this? Because we're losing, our children are losing their identity. We don't know who they are. Let me give you some things real quick. Number one, if you are a father, be a good one. Men, grandfathers too. Let's put grandfathers in there. But if you are a father, be a good one. It is not enough just to provide money for your family. It is not enough to just physically be there on the couch or in the recliner but never having any interaction. And y'all, I'm talking to me too because I'm tempted just this week. He was in this church years ago and he grew up without a father. But what was amazing years ago in this church is men of God and they men him and they raised him.